All right, so good morning again. We're going to actually jump right in. Um, there is a lot of ground to cover and to plow this morning here in Matthew chapter 9, which is, will be the sermon text for this morning. Last time we were in the Gospel according to Matthew, Pastor Scott preached through the end of chapter 8 and into the first eight verses of chapter 9. In that passage, if you would like to go there, end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9, the Gospel according to Matthew, in that passage there were three miracles. First, Jesus calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee. In doing this, Jesus is clearly exercising His authority over nature. Then, Jesus exercises demons from the possessed men on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And here, Jesus is exercising His authority over demonic forces, which are quite real. And then Jesus healed a paralytic, if you remember, who had been let down through the roof of the house on a mat. And of course, here Jesus is clearly exercising his authority over sickness and crippling disease. Now, in that third event, the healing of the paralytic, there were two other important things happening that we need to have in our minds as we pick up this morning in verse 9. So first, please look with me. And Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Matthew 9, verse 2 says this. He, and this is Jesus, before he heals the man's disease. Jesus says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now this is a whole different kind of authority. The authority to forgive sins. I mean, a mere man, like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, can stop the rain for a couple of years, but here we're talking about forgiveness of sins. This is not something that a mere man can do. And the Jewish religious leaders know this, and you should too. Forgiveness of sins, this is a clear claim by Jesus to his deity. And the Jewish religious leaders know this. Look at Matthew 9, verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. This is a serious charge. This Jewish rabbi, Jesus, claiming authority that only God possesses. So the first thing I want you to remember from this event is that Jesus claims the authority to forgive sins. The second thing I want you to have in your mind as we dive into verses 9 and following is this. The Jewish religious leaders don't like it. And there's a confrontation. The first one, actually, we've seen here in the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, there will be many to come, and we're going to see another one in our text this morning. So that's important, this confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. One more brief note of introduction before we dive in. I just want to remind you of some of the things that we've already seen in our study of Matthew. Things that, frankly, would shock us if we weren't so familiar with them. Let's see if we can just for a moment attempt to hear these realities with a different set, a new set of ears this morning. 
Let's think together about those who recognize and accept Jesus for who he claims to be, which is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. We saw this in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, and chapter 9, verse 6. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Here are those whom we have seen who seem to recognize and accept Jesus. First, there are the lepers. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. How about the Roman centurion? Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. How about the demons on the east side of the Sea of Galilee? Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. How about the paralytics? Matthew 9, verse 1. How about the crowds of normal, everyday Jews? Matthew chapter 9, verse 8. And we even saw that back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And how about the tax collectors and the sinners? These are the people whom we will see in our text this morning. These are the ones who seem to be able to see Jesus, to see what, or rather who, is really there in front of them. Now let's think together, again for just a moment, of those who don't recognize Jesus. Ironically, Jesus' own disciples... If you go back just just one page, Matthew chapter 8, verse 27 says, And the men, that is Jesus' disciples in the boat, marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even wins and sea obey him? But more importantly for us, though, this morning, there are the Jewish scribes, the Jewish Pharisees, and as we'll see today, the disciples of John the Baptist. Now this is some contrast, isn't it? I mean, I don't mean to give the end of the story away, but many of these religious types will come to the place of not only not recognizing, but fully rejecting Jesus of Nazareth and condemning him to crucifixion on a Roman cross, hanging naked, suspended between heaven and earth, the divine Son of God humiliated in a public spectacle like some kind of common criminal. So again, the lepers... And the centurions and the demons recognize Jesus. But the Jewish religious leaders, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, don't. I mean, these religious types have been waiting for the Jewish Messiah for almost 1,500 years. And here he is, right in front of them. And they totally missed him. And worse... I hope that seems a little weird to you. And maybe we'll get a little more insight into this this morning. Alright, so we have these things in our mind. Let's dive into Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. Please follow along with me. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, that is, the west side of the Sea of Galilee, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Verse 14, Then the disciples of John the Baptist came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." Let's begin with verse 9 and the scandalous call of Matthew the tax collector. And make no mistake, friends, this was a scandal of epic proportions. Okay, Let's not get ahead of ourselves, but I just want to lead up front with that. First, this Matthew here in chapter 9, verse 9, he's the traditional author of this very gospel account that we're studying. We call it the gospel according to Matthew. So he writes himself into his own account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Why does he do that? I think the reason he does so is because what happens to him here in chapter 9 is nothing short of amazing. I mean, think about it. This is Matthew's testimony. Let's talk about tax collectors in, the fir- in first century Israel. I mean, you think you don't like the IRS. Not even close. The Jews of Jesus' day despised tax collectors like Matthew. Why? First, they were Jews working for the Romans, their pagan overlords. And the Romans squeezed the Jews with all kinds of taxes. Taxes on food, taxes on drink, taxes on goods, taxes on the number of axles on their cart. Taxes when they left the shore of the Sea of Galilee and taxes when they arrived on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And someone like Matthew, who's on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, an ethnic Jew who willingly went to work for the Romans to squeeze his fellow countrymen, this was the ultimate betrayal. But it was actually worse than that. More than squeezing was the stealing. You see, these Jewish tax collectors, these scoundrels would exact more than what the Romans required. Why? (laughs) So they could line their own pockets. So to the betrayal was added straight up theft in clear violation of the Eighth Commandment. In so many ways, listen, a guy like Matthew or Levi, as he's also called, a guy like Matthew in the Jewish mind is the lowest of the low. He was considered so low and so untrustworthy in Israel that his testimony was not even allowed in a court of law. And here comes Jesus. This enigmatic Jewish rabbi. He's walking near the Sea of Galilee in the streets of Capernaum. I mean, the Pharisees wouldn't even walk on the same side of the street as someone like Matthew. Here comes Jesus. And he says to Matthew, while Matthew is in the tax booth, 
while he's at work for the Romans, while he's stealing from his Jewish countrymen. And Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. You know, if we hadn't heard this story before so many times, I'm not sure you would believe it. It's literally crazy. Follow me, Jesus says, to this thieving betrayer of Israel. In Luke's account of the call of Matthew, Luke records that Matthew, what? He left everything. Matthew just walked away from all of it. And dare I say, we all have things that we need to just walk away from to follow Jesus, don't we? Maybe Matthew had to write it down because that helped him to remember and to believe this almost unbelievable thing that happened to him on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what's the first thing that Matthew does? (laughs) He throws a dinner party. What kind of a dinner party? A dinner party with tax collectors and sinners. Are you catching this? Jesus, the divine son of man from Daniel chapter 7, Matthew throws him a dinner party and invites all of his thieving, betraying, tax collector friends with some sinners and who knows, maybe some prostitutes just thrown in for fun. This story is nuts. You ever had the pastor over to your house for dinner? And your toddlers get a little rambunctious and you're so embarrassed? Like, you see the irony of what's going on here in Matthew chapter 9? So what happens? Look at, look at it again. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is eating and drinking with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees catch wind of this. Verse 11, they see it. And they say to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see it, right? This is another confrontation. Right on the heels of the confrontation from the first part of chapter 9. In the first part of chapter 9, the Jewish religious leaders are upset with Jesus for his blaspheming, his forgiveness of sins. And now they're upset with Jesus for his carousing with the riffraff, the unspeakables, the lowest of the low in Israel. The kinds of people that religious people wouldn't be caught dead associating with. Pastors don't care that your toddlers are rambunctious, we understand. This is a dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And Matthew is not embarrassed at all. I'll come to Jesus' response to the Pharisees in a bit. Let's move on, beginning in verse 14. Look with me again, please. Then the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into the old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What is this all about? What is all this about garments and patches? about wine and wineskins. Let me first say this very briefly. This business about garments and patches, about wines and wineskins, right? In Luke chapter 5, which uh, Scott, Scott read earlier, Pastor Scott read earlier, Luke says these things are a parable. Luke chapter 5, verse 36. And this is important. It's important because there are many who think this text is about fasting. Who should fast, when we should fast, etc. Now, I'm not saying that the subject of fasting doesn't appear in this text. It does. And I'm not saying that we should never talk about fasting in the Christian church. There is a time and there's a place for that. But it is not today and it is not from this text. This text is a parable. It's not about fasting any more than it's about weddings. As we dive into these things, I want to take a couple of minutes. It's a brief aside, but it's very important. Please follow. I want to talk about the interpretation of parables. The interpretation of parables. And I'm going to give you up front an important concept. Okay? Often, please hear this, often the interpretation of a parable is dependent upon the direct context in which the parable is told or given. I'm going to say that again. Often... The interpretation of a parable is dependent upon the direct context in which the parable is told or given. Let me give you a very well-known example before we go back to Matthew 9. And you don't have to go along. I'm going to read to you what you need to know. I'm sure you're all aware, perhaps, the most famous story that Jesus ever told. It is often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, parable of the prodigal son is not a very helpful title for this story. Why? Because there are two sons in the parable. And the two sons in the story are not even the most important characters in the story. The most important character in the story is the outlandishly gracious father. Here's my point though. As you remember, there are two sons in the story. There are two brothers. There's an older brother and there's a younger brother. Now, in this parable, whom do these brothers, these characters in the parable, represent? To answer this question, we must listen to the beginning of Luke 15, the brief narrative introduction to the so-called parable of the prodigal son. You don't have to go there. Just listen here. Luke 15, 1 and 2. I'm going to read you the narrative portion. It goes like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then after Jesus tells two brief parables about a lost coin and a lost sheep, Jesus goes on to tell the parable of what we'll call the gracious father with two sons. Who are the two sons? They're in verses 1 and 2. Let me read them again, see if we can pick them out. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, that's one, 
were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, that's two, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. There are your two sons in the parable. First, the tax collectors and sinners, represented, of course, by the younger, prodigal son, and the Pharisees and the scribes, represented by the older, obstinate son. And if an interpreter doesn't make this equivalency, two types of people in the crowd, two sons in the parable, then the interpretation of the parable will be incorrect. And that happens. So it is here in Matthew 9. Let's go back to our text. I talked a few moments ago about contrasts. The lepers, the centurion, the paralytic, the demons, and now the tax collectors and sinners over against the Jewish religious leaders. Look with me at the contrast in Matthew 9. The tax collectors and sinners eat The Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist fast. The tax collectors and sinners receive and accept Jesus at their dinner party. The Pharisees do not. The crowds, look at verse 8, glorified God who had given such authority to men. The scribes and the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy and carousing with the unclean masses. What's the point? The point is this. In the parable of the garment and the patch, and in the parable of the wine and the wineskins, there are two items in each parable. There is an unshrunk cloth. We're going to call that the new patch. And there is an old garment. Verse 16. Verse 17. There is new wine and new wineskins, and there is old wine and old wineskins. And the contrast in the context of Jesus' discussion and the contrast in the parables are parallel. Let me say that again. The contrast in the context of Jesus' discussion and the contrast in the parables are parallel. So let's work together through the interpretation of the parables in Matthew 9. First, Let's start with the easy part of the interpretation. First, there is the new unshrunk patch, and there is the new wine. I trust that we all understand that that which is new in these parables is the message that Jesus of Nazareth is bringing to first century Israel. It is the gospel of the kingdom. The new stuff is the gospel. Did you know that the word kingdom appears 54 times in just the gospel according to Matthew? Now, it's not used the same way every single time, but in the majority of cases, it is describing or being applied to the very thing that Jesus Christ is bringing to fruition. Matthew 4.17, you don't have to go there. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.23, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 7.21, 
one. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven in Matthew 9.35. And Jesus went throughout all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What does Captain America say? I could do this all day. This is one of the main themes of Matthew's gospel account. The gospel of the kingdom is the new thing. It's the new unshrunk patch. It is the new wine. All right, now we have to work just a little harder. So let's look at the text and think together. If the new unshrunk patch and the new wine represent the gospel of the kingdom, which, as we all affirm, is focused on Jesus himself, his perfectly righteous life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection from the dead, and his glorious ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high, where he now sits and rules and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. If these new things, the patch and the wine, represent the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus, Christ, then let's ask ourselves what, rather who, are the ones who are receiving and accepting the new wine? Who in our text, in context, is drinking this new wine in? Answer. The lepers, the centurions, the paralytics, the demon-possessed, the prodigal son of Luke 15, and the tax collectors like Matthew, the sinners who reclined with Jesus and his disciples at the great feast in Matthew's house. Here we have the interpretation. The new wine is the gospel of the kingdom. And the new wineskins, listen, are the outcasts. They're the rejects. They're the sinners who receive and accept Jesus of Nazareth for who he claims to be. So if these things are true, then what, rather who, are the old wineskins? And what is the old wine? And I just want you to know that this is amazing. It really is. And if I'm telling you something you already know, I'm sorry for that, but this is amazing. I want to show you from the text three different answers to these questions. Here are the questions. What is the old garment? What is the old wine? Who are the old wineskins? Ready? Here we go. Look with me again, please, at verses 10 to 13 of Matthew 9. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." For point number one, remember I said there were three. Point number one, I want to focus on the first part of verse 13. Please look with me closely at verse 13. Jesus says to the Jewish religious leaders, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
Now, I'm already going to go long this morning, so I have to short this a bit, alright? But what we need to know is that when Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means, quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, end quote, he's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, specifically Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. A couple of things you need to know about Hosea. Not the prophet, but the book. Number one. Hosea was writing to the Jews in the 8th century B.C., more than 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And number two, more importantly, Hosea is writing to indict the Jews of the 8th century for their idolatry, that is, their not worshipping the one true God of Israel, and their merely external religion. The Jews of the 8th century northern kingdom were empty shells, having, quote, performance without substance, end quote, as one person I know puts it. Does this sound familiar? It should. This is exactly the indictment that Jesus makes against the Jewish religious leaders of his day. For example, in the final days before his crucifixion, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straightening out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." What's the point? The point is this. By quoting from Hosea 6.6, Jesus is identifying the Pharisees as the old wineskins and their false, merely external righteousness as the old wine. You see, the gospel of the kingdom is not merely external. We've already seen this in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? Hatred is murder. Lust is adultery. This is not an external law written on tablets of stone, but it's the law of Christ written on the hearts of redeemed sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. And this is actually the point of the parable of the unshrunk cloth. Please look with me at verse 16 of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus says, verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. What's the old garment? It is the superficial, external righteousness of the Jewish religious leaders. What's the new unshrunk patch? It's the gospel of the kingdom. And it's internal. It's in here. It's in our hearts. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not an add-on to whatever form of external righteousness you already think you have. Whether it's you're going to church, or some other religion, or some kind of charity work that you do, or you're fasting twice a week, just like the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist used to do. 
You cannot add the gospel of the kingdom to any lesser righteousness because, listen, the gospel has a righteousness all its own. And it is the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't have it. And neither do I. In myself, it comes only by faith in Him. And our own filthy rags will not do. Jesus says, if you simply, listen, if you simply try to add the gospel to whatever you're doing to fill the little holes in your own garment of righteousness as you perceive them anyway, it will tear you apart and it will drown you in despair. Trust me, I played the legalism game. So point number one is that the new thing, the new message, the message of the gospel is internal. What else? Let's look at some more old wine. Point number two is focused on verses 15 and 17, but I'm going to pick up in verse 14. Please look with me at verse 14. Then the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. It's a simple question they ask Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Answer, my disciples don't fast because they're at a wedding feast. Jesus says, there's a wedding going on, and you want my disciples to fast? I mean, have you ever been to a wedding? My family, we love weddings. There's a lot of food there. And you know, in ancient Israel, weddings were like a seven-day thing. What does Jesus' answer mean? It's so profound. Jesus is the bridegroom. The redeemed sinners, also known as the church of God, is the bride. The new covenant people of Israel. People of God. And the old wineskins is ethnic Israel. The old covenant people of God. And the old wine is the law. Jesus is the bridegroom. And who is it that he is inviting into this marriage? From the parable of the wedding feast, which Scott read earlier, Matthew 22. Listen. The king who gave a wedding feast for his son. His son. Are you tracking with this? The king, who is Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, first invited a whole bunch of people who wouldn't come. This is Israel. This is the old wineskins. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John chapter 1, verse 11. 
And when the old wineskins wouldn't come, what does it say in Matthew 22? When they wouldn't come, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Filled with gas. These are the new wineskins who come to the wedding feast of the king's son. Why? Because they've received and accepted the gospel of the kingdom. Look again at verse 17 of Matthew 9. Jesus says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. I don't know if you know this or not, but the fermenting process, this is, you know, this is what I do, my day job. The fermenting process is actually a chemical reaction that produces carbon dioxide gas. And so as this new wine ferments inside the wineskin, if the wineskin isn't also new, and elastic, then it will burst open. And both the new wine and the old wineskin will be destroyed. See, friends, this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching, that we're preaching, will not be contained in Israel, in the land of Canaan. Jesus says to his disciples, You will receive power, Acts 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth so that the redeemed sinners will sing a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. So we see that the parables here in Matthew 9 point us to the kingdom of heaven. That it is first internal. That is, these parables point us to the realities of true religion. That true religion, although it absolutely manifests itself in external works, in love toward others, true religion is first and foremost internal in the heart. And we also see that the kingdom of heaven is covenantal. That is, these parables point to the massive changeover from 1,500 years of the Old Covenant to the glories of the New Covenant established by the precious shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, and I'm wrapping up here, point number three. These parables, in their context, make it clear that the new wine... The gospel of the kingdom is personal. It's personal. Look with me again at verse 10 of Matthew 9. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, 
Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, skip a bit, verse 13, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the new wine of the gospel is not for those who think that the old wine is good. Luke chapter 5 Verse 39. If you like what you're walking around in, what the New Testament calls the old man, your sinful flesh, that convinces you that you're healthy and righteous and good enough to stand before the judgment seat of God on that last great day, if you have no sense that you need Jesus, the great physician, whose precious shed blood is powerful to cleanse you from your sins, which you think are mere trifles in the sight of God, and that God is simply going to sweep them under some cosmic carpet, then the new wine is not for you. That sinful flesh of yours, that old man, listen, that old man cannot contain it. When the Holy Spirit of God sheds abroad the love of God in a new, regenerated heart, and that divine love spills over in love towards both your friends and your enemies because your heart has been born again by the Spirit of God Himself, please know that that old sinful heart would just burst open and be utterly obliterated. But, and this is the glory of the new wine, the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified on behalf of sinners, on behalf of those who know that they are sick and in need of a divine healing. I mean, that's the question here this morning, right? Do, do you know that you're sick? Do you know that like the paralytic, Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive you of your sins? Do you know that this meal in which we are about to partake is only for those who know, listen, it's only for those who know that they're sin sick. Amen. Amen. Please do not take the elements as they're passed out if you believe that your own good works qualify you for the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that you're sick? then the good news is that there's a tonic for you. Just like there was for the outcast Matthew, sitting in the tax booth, the thief and ultimate betrayer of Israel. And here comes Jesus. His message is, come, follow me. I have the divine authority to forgive your sins. Friend, I am meek and merciful and I want to recline at table with you this very day. This call is personal. It's for you. Can you hear it? Let's pray.